Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to continue my series dealing with my work on Genesis 1 as a literary polemical temple text. And I'm going to focus on that last section dealing with it being a temple text. I've received a lot of questions about it and I've done a bunch of research. And so here is my findings. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, please head on over to the Patreon page to support us financially. You can also click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog. If you can't financially support us or don't want to for whatever reason, but still appreciate the content, we could really use some five-star ratings on iTunes. So if you want to head on over to iTunes, leave a rating and a review, I would greatly appreciate it. So let me dive right into this series dealing with Genesis 1 and it being a temple text. Enjoy the show. For those following my work on Genesis 1, you know that I believe that Genesis 1 is not a literal historical account or a diachronic scientific account of creation. That is, I don't think that if we were shown creation on a videotape, that it would look like six literal solar days of creation. Now, I'm not going to develop that here and why I disagree with the Young Earth Creationists and 24-hour view of Genesis 1, since I've done that in abundance elsewhere. I've also argued that Genesis 1 is a synchronic, polemical temple text with a highly stylized literary framework. And I've argued for most of that elsewhere. So here, let me start with two major points before I get into the bulk of this episode. First, and more briefly, I want to say that none of this affects one's reading of Genesis 2-4 and following, and the real historical Adam, for example. While there are tertiary issues concerning things like death before the fall, it's simply not the case that if one reads Genesis 1-1-2-3 as a polemical temple text, that we must read Genesis 2-4 and following as such, even though it carries many of the same temple themes and continues the general picture. Quite frankly, there's a strong genre shift that occurs at that point, so much so that many scholars have argued that we're dealing with two completely separate creation narratives that were redacted together at some point in Israel's history. 
Well, I think the source critical view of those who hold the, uh, the, the views like those of well Wellhausen are far too speculative to be helpful, and I disagree with the late dating that such views invariably affirm. I do think that they are right to see two distinct genres and some possible redactional activity may very well be the cause. I just don't think we should throw the inspired text out with the redactional bathwater, so to speak. So with that said, let me assure those listening who are tempted to raise such an objection that I do affirm his, a historical Adam and Eve and a real in time fall into sin. One's view of the genre of Genesis 1 does not necessitate that they hold the same view of the genre of Genesis 2, 4, and following. Second, while I am an ardent critic of the young earth creationist and 24-hour day view of Genesis 1, that doesn't mean that it's because I'm an old earth creationist. I'm not or because I affirm some kind of day-age view or gap theory view of Genesis 1. I don't. In fact, I'm critical of the old earth creationist handling of the text for much the same reasons that I am of the young earth creationist. That is, because they're both concordists. That, that is, that they both believe that the account in Genesis 1 is in accord with the science and what it will tell us about creation. Not merely that it won't contradict it, for surely my view that it's a temple tech is the kind of thing that won't contradict the science because they're just not talking about creation in the same categories. But rather, because they both think that the narrative literally describes what materially and chronologically happened in creation, I just don't think that. I reject both positions because I think both are simply missing what kind of text Genesis 1 is and how an ancient Near Eastern Israelite would have understood such a text. So here I would like to point out that I do think that what the author has in mind when writing Genesis 1 is a seven-day work week, or rather a six-day work week followed by a day of rest. I know. Some of you may be confused as to how I can say that and reject the seven-day literal view of creation. Well, it's simple. It's basically because I think the author was following a common ancient Near Eastern and Israelite convention of temple and sacred space inauguration, which was commonly done in the space of seven. Seven days, seven weeks, seven years, so on. The paradigm of the work week was simply a helpful grid or conceptual framework by which to order the temple text that was being written. Now, this is not some arbitrary decision that I'm making. And in this episode, what I'd like to now do is present some of the evidence that shows that Genesis 1 is in fact a temple text, specifically likely a liturgical temple text, and this is how Moses, who I think is the author, and the ancient Near Eastern Israelite audience would have understood it. We can see that the creation is viewed as a temple by its ancient Near Eastern background. Firstly, the concept of creation as a temple is not new to the book of Genesis, and neither is the heptatic, which is a sevenfold structure, of the creation narrative. We commonly see the establishment of temples to worship the creator god or god, such as in the Enuma Elish and the Sumerian Gudea cylinders from approximately 2125 BCE follow the same type of pattern. While this list does not connect the Gudea cylinders with, by the way, I'm just going to call them GC from now on for short, 
while it doesn't connect GC with Genesis, it does show clear ancient Near Eastern background commonalities between how the original authors and audiences would have viewed the relationship between temples and the cosmos. Like the creation count account in Genesis 1, GC has a recurring statement or a ritual formula that moves the story along in a rhythmic, almost melodic manner, while at the same time describing a step-by-step -step description of the creation process. But in the same case, the GC is not God, but the pious ruler who, involve, who is involved in building the ancient Sumerian cosmic temple. So we see connections, like the temple building is connected with uh, fertility. We see this in Gudea Cylinder A, uh, uh, and we see it in Genesis 1. We see that the temple building is connected with wisdom, which is the, the Cylinder A in Genesis 2. We see the divine call and permission to build the temple in Genesis A and Genesis 1, the pronouncement of blessing over the temple in Cylinder A and Genesis 2, that the temple completion uh, is given an announcement in, in Cylinder B and Genesis 1, and there are other parallels like this that can be drawn, like the association of the temple with kingship, such as the kingship of Adam, which we see in Exodus 28. Uh, and the tireless commitment to the temple building, the approving descriptions of the temple, that what they saw was good, and so on and so forth. But one of the main comparisons is the seven-day inauguratory temple dedication found in Cylinder B uh, that, that uh, shows that it's done with a seven-day inauguration. We know the Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Assyrian, Sumerian, and Babylonian temple texts all associated their temples as places of divine rest as well, and they were frequently created and viewed as gardens with cosmic significance. In addition, we know that the ancient Near Eastern concepts of enthronement of deities in their temples commonly followed victories over their foes, such as in the case of Marduk, Baal, El, and so forth. We see the similar tradition in what has been called the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15, where God takes up his, quote, holy abode, end quote, in the sanctuary on the, quote, mountain of his inheritance, end quote, where, quote, Yahweh will reign forever and ever, end quote. It shouldn't be surprising, considering what we've seen so far, that in other stories like the, the Epic of Baal, we're told that he takes up his holy abode in the mountain of his inheritance. It's the same language. We see this here in the water ordeal during the Exodus where God conquered his foes in Egypt. Moses uses the themes available to him during that same time period. And while Genesis 1 presents to us a stripped down creation narrative without all the cosmic battles between various gods because of the monotheism of Moses, what we do see is the subduing and controlling of the waters. Now, waters were a ubiquitous ancient Near Eastern symbol for chaos or lack of order or disorder, uh, and that the Israelites would have believed God would have needed to gain control over them before resting in, his, in the temple that he builds. Now, while his foe in Genesis 1 is not another personal deity, he has a foe in the forces of chaos and disorder that the waters represent nonetheless. This concept of overcoming the waters and the floods to be enthroned is clearly seen in Psalm 29 and Psalm 93. In fact, the direct link between creation and God's conquering of the waters is found in Psalm 89, which reads, quote, 
You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Your arm is enthroned with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. End quote. Now, this psalm is actually especially striking if you remember my prior work on polemics and show that the, the idiom of a strong hand or a mighty arm are common polemical motifs. And here we have the expressed link between creation, conquering the waters, and the use of God's mighty or strong hand, a verse showing that this polemical view of creation was known and adopted in the scriptures itself. Now, we also know that seeing creation in their temples through heptatic lenses is nearly ubiquitous in our extant temple texts from the time period as well. Biblical scholar Lauren Fisher writes, quote, One must speak of ordering the cosmos in terms of seven, even as the construction of the microcosm must be according to the sacred number, end quote. An example of this excuse me, is the Ugaritic Baal epic, which describes the building of Baal's sanctuary and relates it to creation. What is striking is that the building took six days, in which a fire burned for those six days, and on the seventh day the fire was extinguished, and Baal rejoices and takes up his rest in his sanctuary. This is all the more telling when we read in passages like Exodus 35, 5, that the Israelites were not to have a fire burning on the Sabbath, and that this command immediately precedes the instructions about constructing the tabernacle. This same concept of a temple as a place of rest post-creation can also be seen in narratives of El and the Ugarit and the Babylonian stories, where El places his feet up on his footstool and declares, now I will sit and rest as well as where Baal's throne is called a throne of rest in his temple. So that's a little bit of the, of the literary background, but there's also some literary features with the number seven in Genesis 1. The number seven is a significant number in the ancient Near Eastern Hebrew culture and was viewed as, a, as signifying perfection. Genesis 1.1 has seven words that open the book. Genesis 1.2 keeps the pattern with 14 words. Significant words from, one, from verses 1-1 one, one appear in the text in multiples of seven. By the way, these are statistically anomalous and highly unlikely to be random. So, for example, God appears 35 times in the chapter. Earth appears 21 times. Heavens affirm, appears 21 times. Other terms that either initiate or close days also occur seven times. So it was so appears seven times, and it was good appears seven times. Now, some of you may be thinking that this could simply be an artifact of each corresponding with one day. So if you have this pattern that appears with the days and it happens on seven days, then of course you're going to have seven of them. Well, the problem is that this idea that these are intentionally numbered seven times, and it's not simply an artifact, is bolstered considering that the it was good clause is missing from day two, but then it appears twice in day three, apparently to keep the numerical symmetry. Thus, the idea that it's merely an unintentional consequent of the number of days is highly unlikely. In fact, the Septuagint was also apparently so bothered by the missing completion formula that it adds it back in to 120. 
going on. The terms for light and day appear seven times in the first paragraph. There are seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. Water is mentioned seven times in paragraphs two and in three. The whole narrative follows a heptatic structure after the first verse with seven paragraphs corresponding to each of the days. Scholar Casuto writes that, quote, an obvious indication of this division is to be seen in the recurring sentence, and there was evening and there was morning, such and such a day. Hence, the Masoretes were right in placing an open paragraph after each of the verses, end quote. Genesis 2.13 refers to the seventh day three times in three sentences, each of which is composed of seven words. Considering that Hebrew would intensify and emphasize conflicts by triplicate repetition, and the number seven was seen as the number of perfection, this literarily shows that the extreme significance that the seventh day had as the perfect culmination of the creation week. The total number of words in the seventh paragraph dealing with the seventh day is a multiple of seven, it's 35 words. Now, while Genesis 2 and 3 continue on the theme of seven, it's less drastically and less pronounced. It does not seem to form such a complex literary structural grid through which all the communication is made. So that, again, is part of that genre shift that happens in Genesis 2. However, the theme of seven continues. Eden and West together show up 35 times. Adam and as man to show up together as 28 times. Man, together shows up with helper, shows up 21 times. We find 21 usages of words derived from the root to eat, and seven of those in the one paragraph describing the precise moment of the fall. The verb to take, which holds special narratival significance, also appears seven times. Casuto even argues that 2-4 through the end of Genesis 3, if broken into paragraphs at logical and grammatical division points, that there are seven naturally emerging paragraphs. Levinson agrees with Casuto, who wrote, quote, it is impossible to think all this is nothing but coincidence, end quote. So that's a little bit of the literary uh, features of the number seven and its ancient Near Eastern and temple background significance. Next, we can move to the garden view as a temple. New Testament scholar Gregory Beale argued in his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, that the creation narrative presents to us a temple layout. And J.V. Fesco, in his book, Last Things First, makes the compelling case that the garden is to be understood as an archetypal temple and that Adam was really the first priest to the Lord. We're told in Genesis 3.8 how God walks back and forth in the garden and it uses the same terminology as Leviticus 26.12 and Deuteronomy 23.14 and what they say in describing how God walks back and forth in the tabernacle. Now, the geography of the temple can also be uh, represented um, in the same way as the, as the geography of the garden. So you have the outside terrestrial earth, the kind of inner land, and then the inner inners, which is the garden, which corresponds to the outer courtyards, the inner holy place, and then the inner holy of holies. There's this triplicate structure. Uh, there's, there's a graphic that I'll include in the show notes that, that shows this. In that graphic, we can see that the earth land uh, garden is modeled or at least anticipates the tabernacle structure that God would deliver later to Moses in the giving of the law. For this, Beale writes, quote, 
This is a long quote, by the way, so sorry. Quote, it may even be discernible that there was a sanctuary and a holy place in Eden corresponding roughly to that in Israel's later temple. The garden should be viewed not itself the source of water, but adjoining Eden because Genesis 2.10 says, quote, a river flowed out of Eden to the water to water the garden, end quote. Therefore, in the same manner that ancient palaces were adjoined by garden, Eden is the source of the waters and is the palatial residence of God, and the garden adjoins God's, re God's residence. Similarly, Ezekiel 47.1 says that the water would flow out from under the Holy of Holies in the future eschatological temple and would water the earth around. Similarly, in the end-time temple of Revelation 22.1-2, there is portrayed a river of the water of life, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb and flowing into a garden-like grove, which has been modeled on the first paradise in Genesis 2, as has been much of Ezekiel's portrayal. If Ezekiel and Revelation are developments of the first garden temple, then Eden, the area where the source of the water is located, may be compared to the inner sanctuary of Israel's later temple and the adjoining garden to the holy place, Eden, and its adjoining garden form two distinct regions. This is compatible with the identification of the lampstand in the holy place of the temple with the tree of life located in the fertile plot outside the inner place of God's presence. Additionally, the bread of the presence, also in the holy place, which provided food for the priests, would appear to reflect the food produced in the garden for Adam's sustenance. The land and seas to be subdued by Adam outside the garden were roughly equivalent to the outer court of Israel's subsequent temple. Thus, one may be able to perceive an increasing gradation in holiness from outside the garden proceeding inward. The region outside the garden is related to God and is very good, and that it is God's creation, the outer court. The garden itself is sacred space separate from the outer world, where God's priestly servants worship God by obeying him, by cultivating the garden. Eden is where God dwells as the source of both physical and spiritual life, symbolized by the waters, end quote. So that's creation as temple. Now we can see how this later develops in the tabernacle as viewed as creation. First, we can see that the heptatic structure is paralleled in the construction and consecration of the tabernacle under Moses. In Exodus 24, 15-16, the cloud of presence covers Moses on the mountain for six days, and on the seventh day is when God calls to Moses from the cloud to instruct him. The same phenomena occurs in Exodus 40 when God filled the tabernacle with the cloud and then called out to Moses from within the cloud. In fact, this association between the cloud on Mount Zion and the cloud which filled the tabernacle has led some to saying that there is a contradiction in the book of Leviticus between 1.1 and 7.38. In Leviticus 1.1, the proclamation of the laws of sacrifices was made in the tabernacle, whereas in 7.38 it was done on Mount Sinai. Here, the contradiction is resolved only by adopting the view that Moses viewed these two things as one and the same thing, an expression of the temple dwelling of God on earth, where in material space the manifestation of the temple of God would be is simply not relevant. The sanctuary of God on earth is patterned after and in a very real sense is an expression of the sanctuary of God in heaven. 
By the way, this too parallels an ancient Near Eastern mythology where in Mesopotamian, uh, the story of the temple Esengil, depending on the deity being worshipped, the temple was seen as a mirror of Apsu, or an image of Isara, or an earthly counterpart of Ea's celestial dwelling, and so forth. So this Jewish concept that the worship below should mirror or be like the worship in heaven or the celestial realm has roots deep in ancient Near Eastern thought. We can also see that the consecration of the priests and of the temple both took seven days in Exodus 29. The seven days of Genesis are paired with the seven speeches to Moses, and each begin with the statements of God's uh, saying something, a declarative act. In Genesis 1, it's, and God said, while in Exodus, it's, the Lord spoke. And then we see this in Exodus 25, 1, 30, 11, 30, 16, 30, 22, 30, 34, 31, 11, and 31, 12. While some, like Lewis Fletcher, find semblance between each of the seven speeches and one of the days of creation, I find those claims to parallel to be far too vague to reasonably imputed to the intention of the author for every single one of them. Though I do have to admit that the first and the seventh speeches may give some credit, credence to this view. The first speech stretches the importance of tending the menorah at the morning and evening sacrifices, separating out not just day and evening light, uh, but are the first sacrificial lines of defense, protecting the purity of light of Israel from the darkness of sin. In addition, the fact that the seventh speech is a speech enjoining rest and the importance of Sabbath for Israel, clearly paralleling the Sabbath rest of the seventh day of creation, I think does add some credibility to the line of argument that at least there are some semblance between Genesis 1 and these speeches to Moses. Maybe not in a one-to-one correlation for each of the days, but that when Moses was writing this and when God was speaking this, the analogy was clearly to be kept in mind. In addition, by the time of Josephus, the view that every object of the tabernacle was an image to help represent some part of the cosmos and the heavenly realm was widely attested, especially in Midrashic literature. There's also a clear connection verbally between the seventh day and the completion of the tabernacle in Exodus 39 for 40. Now, for brevity, I'm going to leave out the complex Hebrew comparisons, but for more on these, you can see the work of Weinfeld in his paper, Sabbath, Temple, and the Enthronement of the Lord, the problem of the Sitz and Laban of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, especially on page 503. Okay, but without going into the detailed Hebrew similarities, there are some other similarities. First, you can see completion phrases and repetition of them is similar in Genesis 2 and Exodus 39 to 40. So for example, seeing all the work and that it was good in Genesis 1:31 and Exodus 39:43, that all the work was completed in Genesis 2:1 and Exodus 39:32, that God or Moses finished their work on Genesis 2:2 and Exodus 40:33, that God or Moses declared blessing over their work in Genesis 2:3 and Exodus 39:43, that God or Moses sanctified uh, the work in Genesis 2:3 and Exodus 49. The Sabbath as well is a hinge point in both narratives, where it concludes the command section, such as in Exodus 31, 12 through 17, and begins the fulfillment or functioning section of 35, 23, just as the Sabbath conclude the fiat sections of the creation week and moves into the fulfillment and functioning of the garden temple with Adam as priest, following that in Genesis 2, 4. 
Considering the verbal and conceptual parallels listed, Fletcher Lewis writes, obviously the correspondences mean that creation has its home in the liturgy of the cult and the tabernacle as a mini cosmos. This can further be supported when we consider the presentation of Adam as the first priest of Yahweh. First, we must remember that in the ancient Near Eastern conceptions of worship, the role of humanity was to feed the gods by their sacrifices in their temples. The food that they offered was the literal sustenance of the gods. That is, the reason that the gods demanded the temples to be built and offerings to be made was that they really needed humans to feed and shelter them, or at least if they wanted food and shelter without needing to do it themselves. When we look at the Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, for example, humans were created for the sole purpose of providing food for the gods so that they would not have to work for themselves. Humans were considered then menial labor for the gods, who would then repay their efforts with rain, vital crops, and fertility if they offered enough. The deities in the ancient Near East were entirely dependent on humans for their survival, just as much as humans were on the gods for theirs. It was a rather symbiotic relationship, even if the scales of power were lopsided. We can see this clearly in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Mesopotamian flood story that bears striking similarities to the flood narrative of Genesis 6. In this epic tale, Utnapishtim, the parallel to Noah, is carried through a major flood on his boat, and when he survives, he offers sacrifices to the gods. The strange thing for the readers only familiar with the biblical flood narrative is that in this epic, the gods frantically flock to feed on the sacrifices because they were actually ravenously hungry. This is because during the flood, in which all the people and all the crops had been obliterated, no offerings of food were given, and thus the, gar the gods had not eaten. The gods were quite literally starving. At this point, Utnapishtim and his wife were granted eternal life by the gods, not for their righteousness like Noah, but in payment for saving the lives of the famished gods by feeding them. Genesis 1, however, flips the script of the temple theme in ancient Near Eastern religious climate. Rather than the temple being a place where God is sheltered and fed by his people in order to stay alive, the temple is where God's people come for their, their spiritual sustenance. The emphasis is not on what man does for God, but on what God does to maintain his people. In fact, this was apparently the purpose for God's formation of the garden and the land to begin with. Not that humans were made to support Yahweh in the land, but that the land was fashioned to make a habitable place in which humans were to live, be sustained, and enjoy fellowship with God. Sacrifices were not given as nourishment to Yahweh in the temple, but rather primarily as offerings of thanks and atonement for what has already taken place, either God's blessings or man's sin. Further support that the temple theme and the polemical shift away from the ancient Near Eastern cultic systems can be seen by looking at the role of Adam in the garden. In Genesis 2.5, we're told that Adam is to tend, avad, and to keep, shamar, the garden. Words that are also found in Numbers 3, 7 to 8, 8, 26, 18, 5 through 6, 1 Chronicles 23, 32, and Ezekiel 14, 40, uh, 14, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 44, 14 combined together in descriptions of the duties of Levitical priests within the tabernacle. For example, we read Numbers 3, 7 to 8, the following, quote, and the priest shall keep, Shamar, his charge, and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service, Avad, of the tabernacle. And they shall keep, Shamar, all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation, 
and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service avad of the tabernacle, end quote. The author of Genesis was expressly highlighting Adam's priestly role within the garden temple in light of the Levitical regulations found later on the Pentateuch. This can be further supported when we consider that the Aramaic translation of Genesis 2.15 tells us that Adam was placed in the garden, quote, to toil in the law and to observe its commandments, end quote, and says that he used, quote, the language of the sanctuary, end quote, to name all the animals. There even arose a tradition by the time of the Targum, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan that the dust of the earth which God used to create Adam was, quote, dust from the site of the sanctuary, end quote, a tradition that would gain quite a bit of support. In fact, the Midrash Rabbah Genesis would not only repeat this tradition, but would even say that one of Adam's roles in the garden was to offer sacrifices that would only later be required by the Mosaic law. In addition, in many of the Qumran scrolls, we're told that the high priest is called, quote, the angel of the inner shrine of heaven, end quote, and that the inner shrine, also called the Holy of Holies, is associated with the big or greater luminary, which is the sun. In Ben Sira, the high priest is depicted as the morning star and as the sun shining in the temple. Klein summarizes this by saying, quote, the creator had prepared in Eden an earthly replica of his heavenly dwelling as the holy place where man would fulfill his priestly office, end quote. Yet this implicitly underscores the polemical point which the author uh, Moses had been making throughout the creation narrative. Adam was not there to shelter and feed Yahweh, but rather was to act as his vice regent over creation, ministering before the Lord in the garden. It is precisely at this point that the author drives the polemical differences home to his audience in the roles which are ascribed to Adam. The proper role of mankind in creation and while living in the land is not to feed and shelter the gods, but rather to rule over creation and care for it. We're told that the man is to have dominion over creation and not to be subservient subjects to the divine forces of nature. Humans are sub to subdue nature, a very strong term meaning to bring something under authority. In the Hebrew creation account, humans are viewed as vice-regents of Yahweh who are only under his authority, but who still have a special authoritative role over the environment that he placed them in. This is the capstone of the polemical case that the creation account is making. Humanity is not subject to every whim of the divinely imbued cosmic order. They're not the bottom of the heap, needing to be subservient and servile to all creation. They are the image bearers of the one true God, the only creator, Yahweh, and are given authority to exercise dominion over creation. It's a complete 180 degree reversal from the religious mythos of every surrounding culture. Now we can look at how following the tabernacle, the temple was viewed as creation. We're now two steps removed from the text of Genesis, I admit, and as we've moved from the garden temple to the wilderness tabernacle to the Solomonic temple, so much of the striking verbal parallels are going to be missing, but there is still clear conceptual connections. There's the connection of the temple in Jerusalem that finishes in the seventh year. We see this in 1 Kings 6.38. This means that the Lord ascends to his enshrined throne during the Sabbath year of rest after the architectural labor has been completed. 
The temple dedication occurs on the Feast of Tabernacles, a seven-day festival mirroring the time of the tabernacle in Deuteronomy 16.13, and we're told that it fell on the seventh month of the year, in the year that it was completed, in 1 Kings 8.2. Solomon's speech of dedication for the temple includes seven fiats, or petitions, that is seven statements, which mirrors the seven statements to Moses and the seven fiats and statements of the creation account in Genesis 1. And we see these uh, dedications in, in the speech of Solomon in 1 Kings 8.31-53. Secondly, the concept of manucha, or rest, also links the temple with creation. Rest occurred at the completion of each construction project on the temple, and Psalm 132, 13-14 associates the temple experience with rest. 1 Chronicles 22.9 even tells us that one of the reasons that Solomon was commissioned to build the temple and David was not is because Solomon was a, quote, man of rest and peace, end quote, which is typified by his name, which implies shalom, which literally is kind of an all-encompassing peaceful rest. In addition, we know other texts like Sirach 24 make direct allusions based on the relationship between the temple and creation, and others like the Book of Jubilees 3 and other Qumranic texts describe the temple with garden language and elements, thus showing that Eden was viewed as a kind of prototype or cosmic blueprint for the temple. Other parallels like the cherubim and the east-facing entrance or the menorah fashioned after the tree of life have led most biblical scholars to conclude that the that Wenham uh, can conclude what Wenham summarizes when he states, quote, Thus, in the last verse of the narrative, there is a remarkable concentration of powerful symbols that can be interpreted in the light of the later sanctuary design. These features combine to suggest that the Garden of Eden was a type of archetypal sanctuary where God was uniquely present in all his life-giving power, end quote. Beale says something similar when he writes, quote, The cumulative effect of the parallels between the Garden of Genesis 2 and Israel's tabernacle and temple indicates that Eden was the first archetypal temple upon which all of Israel's temples were based, end quote. Klein echoes this when he says that, quote, the Garden of Eden was a microcosmic earthly version of the cosmic temple and the site of a visible local projection of the heavenly temple, end quote. This is further supported in other ancient Near Eastern texts like the Enuma Elish, where a temple is erected at the site of creation for Marduk to rest in having established creation, much as we're told that God entered his temple to rest, something made explicit in Genesis 1 and Psalm 132. We're also told in Egyptian inscriptions of dedication that the deity found rest forever in the temple, just as we're told in Psalm 132.14 that God's rests would be forever in the temple. So here I've attempted to briefly show some of the stronger evidence that what we have in Genesis 1 is, in fact, a temple text. While this is not all the evidence for it, this should not be understood in isolation apart from my other works dealing with Genesis 1 as a literary polemic as well. I think what I've done is given a strong case for the genre of Genesis 1 not being literal historical narrative, but rather a common ancient Near Eastern temple text. To sum this up, rather than putting it in my words, let me just read some quotes from Old Testament scholars on this very issue. Morrow writes, quote, 
The careful attention to the sevenfold structure indicates that Genesis in its final form is a liturgical text. Genesis 1 reads as a sort of liturgical hymn, end quote. And then later he adds, quote, creation in Genesis, we may conclude, is described as a temple. It is constructed as an ancient Near Eastern temple would be in construction. The divine fiats are architectural directives in the words of Meredith Klein, end quote. Colander writes, quote, when isolated from its present literary context in the Pentateuch, the repetitive nature of Genesis 1, 1 through 24 suggests a, litur a litur liturgy for which it may, in fact, have been used at some point. By the way, it was used that way. It's used um, uh, in, in Persian Jewish uh, tradition. Uh, Genesis 1, the creation account, is read uh, on uh, the time of the Sabbath. Now, while cautioning against reading the chapter as poetry, like we would the creation of Psalm 104, Levinson agrees that, quote, Genesis 1 also has a certain liturgical flavor, end quote. Weinfeld expands on this when he writes, quote, the recurring formulas, and he saw it was good, and it was evening, and it, and it was morning, are a type of refrain which imparts to the chapter a liturgical character, we know today that the Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish was customarily read in ceremonies in the sanctuary, whereas the Persians recited Theogony while sacrificing in Herodotus I. Also in Israel, at least in the Second Temple times, the priestly courses customarily read portions from the account of creation on the sixth day they recited Genesis 2.1. Ververne uh, Ver even calls it, quote, the Cosmic Liturgy of the Seventh Day. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email us at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or join the Freed Thinker Facebook group page. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Good night, and God bless.